In this special Mayday segment of Rust Belt Abolition Radio, we speak with acclaimed scholar Robin D.G. Kelly, professor and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. Kelly's intellectual work spans the far-reaching histories of the Black Freedom Movement, African-American history, culture, music, and aesthetics, and the politics of the Black radical imagination. His books include Africa Speaks, America Answers, Modern Jazz in Revolutionary Times, and Freedom Dreams, the Black radical imagination, among many others. We released this episode on May Day, or International Workers' Day, celebrated annually by millions across the world in commemoration of the 1886 Haymarket Square Massacre and the ongoing global struggle for a world without capitalist exploitation and racial domination. We sat down with Robin D.G. Kelly to explore the critique of racial capitalism, the history of class struggle across the color line, and the abolitionist horizon. I'm Robin D.G. Kelly. I'm a professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA. I don't make the claim of being one of these, you know, scholar activists. I'm an intellectual who does everything I can to support any struggles for liberation without any conceit as far as um, our role as intellectuals. And also being a scholar, I distinguish from being an intellectual because the scholars are into production. Intellectuals are into sort of deep thinking, not just to solve problems, but to reveal them. As James Baldwin would say, bearing witness. And bearing witness, for me, is about trying to reveal truths that are really uncomfortable. It's not about inspiration, you know? And I, and I just want to clarify that, because people always say, well, you know, you're supposed to be inspiring. You're supposed to, you know, movements inspire us. But as Gramsci talks about the pessimism of the intellect, it's all about revealing the things that are that really are unexpected. In a recent essay entitled, What Did Cedric Robinson Mean by Racial Capitalism? You trace the history and theorization of the term racial capitalism. Can you explain for us what it means as well as the context in which it emerges? Well, that's, a, that's a great question. And by the way, that essay was really intended to clarify what Cedric meant, which is a little different from the genesis of the term racial capitalism. So I was trying to situate racial capitalism in his book, Black Marxism, where his very basic objective was to argue that racism was not the outcome of capitalism. It wasn't the product of you know wily capitalists who were trying to divide the working class, but rather that the civilization in which capitalism emerged was already racial, racialized. You had racial difference being produced within Europe itself, the Slavs, is really the original slaves, the, the dispossession of the Irish was a colonial move on the part of, of the English. You know, anti-Semitism and other forms of, of difference produced what was essentially within Europe a working class or a laboring class who was already perceived to be external, other, and that that ground of racialization was the ground in which capitalism emerged already thoroughly racial. And the other thing which is, is that capitalism wasn't necessarily a dramatic revolutionary break from feudalism. It emerged out of feudalism. And in fact, what he says is that socialism emerged out of feudalism. There's no guarantee that socialism or capitalism would have won, that they both emerged as ways of resolving certain kinds of crises, certain problems that emerge when you actually hold people to the land as semi-slaves. You know, how do you open that up? And so, in some ways, his objective was, again, to reveal 
the racial foundations of capitalism without playing into the kind of what came first, the chicken or the egg business. And so by the time capitalism takes on its, its merchant and imperial forms, it's already racial. I mean, there's already kind of a way of thinking about the African as both human, semi-human, subhuman, and non-human, or the indigenous peoples constructed as not having any conception of private property and therefore a fetter to society and, and can be el- eliminated easily. The, the, that ideology was there. There's another source of racial capitalism. This comes out of South Africa. South Africa has a long history going really back to the late 60s, early 70s, of thinking about how does capitalism function within the apartheid system? How accumulation take place uh, in a system in which you have legally codified racial hierarchies? You know, where does a kind of black petty bourgeoisie exist within that? What does it mean for a white working class? And it's interesting because a lot of that scholarship coming out of South Africa was trying to figure out, like, what do you do with the white working class? What is the white working class? Are they just benefiting from super exploitation of black labor? So that theorizing is really sort of the origins of racial capitalism from another vantage point. Cedric, of course, was in England speaking with, knowing all these folks who were doing work on South Africa when he wrote Black Marxism. So he was familiar with that, that genesis, but he just had a different objective. I was wondering also if you could briefly mention the ways in which racial capitalism has moved into the movement for Black Lives and gained circulation recently. Yeah, the concept. Okay, so the movement for Black Lives, which is a coalition of a whole bunch of organizations, Black Lives Matter being one. And so some of the organizers in this massive coalition were sort of veterans of the movement. This is cross-generational, by the way. It cuts across from people doing work on prison abolition to people doing work on welfare rights, people doing work around immigration detention. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. The concept of racial capitalism came about as a result of sort of two or three things. One is revisiting Cedric Robinson's work. I I credit uh, Angela Davis in part for that because she's been talking about this for a while. In terms of the precise political demand or requirement, it was also a way to hedge those criticisms that say Black Lives Matter, anti-police brutality, is not anti-capitalism. That, that's, you know, this is just a side issue, whereas the real class struggle are those who see race as a diversion or identity politics as a kind of diversion from the real struggle. That's an old argument. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it's so old it predates my birth, and I'm an old person. So it's been around for a long time. That is a kind of class first. So racial capitalism was a way to mobilize an understanding that places race not at the margins, not even at the center, but completely intersected. Incorporating racial capitalism in the sort of teaching materials, in the discussion of how to move forward politically, was really about recognizing the, the indivisibility of racism from capitalism. In other words, they're not different categories. And it's also about recognizing that, to give you a South African example, in South Africa, there was a decision made by the ANC to push towards what's called two-stage theory of revolution, two-stage theory of struggle, which was different from the one-stage theory. One-stage theory was we're going to combat 
capitalism and racism and all forms of hierarchy and oppression immediately. I'm sure your listeners know about the ANC Freedom Charter. The Freedom Charter was really the program for the African National Congress. And that program entailed things like the nationalization of the mines. It entailed uh, nationalization of industry, as well as the elimination of all forms of racial barriers. So basically, what they were arguing for was that we we're going to make a, a socialist revolution and tearing down the racial barriers that apartheid erected is what the revolution is about. Then they moved to the two-stage theories. That we're going to do the, the racial forms of segregation, racial difference, racial di- wage differentiation. We're going to deal with that first. And then we're going to attack capitalism, which, of course, people recognize was a fatal flaw. Because what did you get? You got you know language rights. You got the end of racial barriers. But you got deeper inequality through neoliberal capital. And so when we go back and look at the United States, the argument to fight racial capitalism is the argument that even struggles against the police state, against the carceral state, against wars against immigrants and detention, private public prisons, struggles for fair housing, that these things cannot be separated from the struggle to end capitalism, that capitalism is really our main objective. But you can't end capitalism and think that racism is going to disappear. So that's, that's where this discourse comes in and why strategically it's really, really imperative for movements to move forward. And what uh, the Movement for Black Lives is getting is a lot of pushback from those self-proclaimed defenders of the proletariat who will argue that you need to have a class-first approach because once you can eliminate capitalism, racism will wither away. Well, to go back to Cedric, he demonstrated that it can't wither away because it preceded capitalism. It has to be dismantled. You've been talking about both South Africa and the United States. In that sense, racial capitalism is always already racial, as well as always already global and globalizing. How does racial capitalism help us make sense of both the creation of racialized disposable populations globally and our contemporary moment more generally? This is an essential question. Two things you said. One is that racial capitalism is always already global, and I think that's absolutely true. You know, when we think about how we use terms like globalization as if it's a particular epoch or stage, it in some ways obscures the processes by which capitalism both emerged, expanded. So slavery, dispossession, what Marx calls primitive accumulation is something that was both foundational capitalism and never disappeared. In fact, to call it primitive, and by that he means primary, is kind of a misnomer. It does, it's not the beginning of the formation of industrial capitalism. In fact, what we can argue is that the globalizing processes have always been based on unfree labor. And, and I think this is important. Even at the end of slavery, un, one form of unfree labor was replaced by another, so-called coolie labor, as Asian um, forced migration filling in the role where sort of formerly African enslaved labor played, or looking at forms of forced labor, even from the, from the inception of uh, forced labor within Europe. I mean, you have forced labor being the product of enclosure and dispossession and the workhouse. The modern workhouse was the origins of the modern prison. Um, the workhouse was designed to discipline populations that were considered disposable. Now, here's where this, this question of disposability comes in, because Marx talked about, you know, that capitalism always creates a reserve army of, of labor. Capitalism can never incorporate 100%. It can never have, like, 100% employment. 
with the 20th century and with Fordism, some of those same workers become the main consumers. And so therefore, Fordism is one in which you have the exploitation of a labor force who becomes a consumer force as well, paid wages, and then through the use of debt and credit, can then buy those commodities that become surplus. And again, continue to keep the cycle of capitalism going. Those are in the Western nations, in the, in the what you call the global north. Ultimately, the super-exploited proletariat become the peasants and the workers all over the world outside of the global north. And then they're not like consumers. They're like forced labor. You know, I mean, I mean, literally forced labor in the 20th century. And ultimately, they become consumers. Um, and each through each process, there are two things happening. Uh, the use of debt and credit to turn people to consumers and to tie them to, to a wage uh, system. Uh, and then the fact that capitalism's periodic crises means that they're always producing too much. They always have too much capital that has to go someplace. And then surplus labor means you got to do something with surplus labor. At some point, you run out of um, uses. And you've got to control that surplus labor. Because the one thing that's different about surplus labor than, say, surplus living capital in the forms of, like, animals is that I've never known pigs, cows, oxen to make a revolution. And now, and I'm all about animals. I'm all about, you know, solidarity. But they've never made a revolution. Surplus labor does. Even employed labor does. So the point is, is that you've got to do something with this disposable. And disposable basically means there's no particular use for them. And again, maybe my definition of disposability is a little different. If labor were inert and just didn't move, and it wouldn't have to be disposable. Disposability is about rendering either invisible or inert. And so the carceral state which is not new, but certainly has expanded, plays that role. What, what also plays that role, I mean, the cultural state's kind of obvious, your listeners know that, also plays a role is restructuring of labor so that automation is one way to save labor, labor costs. But automation, I don't believe that automation actually produces massive unemployment. It changes the nature of employment. It changes the nature of work so that it allows for the pressure on wages to go down. It allows for the, the creation of precarious labor, part-time, service-oriented work that usually requires cobbling together more than one job with no benefits, the kinds of things that, that trade unions had fought so hard to defend, that is, the social wage, the right for the state or the demand on the state to provide basic needs for those who need them, basic services for the, for the people, basic education, basic health care, basic housing, as well as basic protections for the right to organize and protect themselves as a community. If you're involved in precarious labor, there's no way you're going to have that unless you can create new forms of organization. And again, this is why I'm always hopeful, because precisely because these are human beings with incredible minds working together to figure out how to get themselves out of the situation, they come up with new forms of organization. New forms of organization require new forms of repression. New forms of repression requires new forms of technology that could repress, surveil, and cage people. And so what we're seeing now is 
a, a race on a part of, part of the carceral state to catch up to the struggles of people. In your book, Hammer and Hole, you tell the story of Alabama communists fighting both capitalist exploitation and against police brutality across the color line. Can you tell us more about this struggle and what lessons we can learn from it? So Hammer and Hole is a book about the Communist Party in the most unlikely place of Alabama in the 1930s. And I say unlikely because we think of American communism in cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. We think about these like trained Marxists organizing people to fight evictions and things like that. Well, Alabama was a place that was considered a backwater, but if you look at it very carefully, it was one of the industrial centers of the United States. There was major steel producing uh, city, Birmingham. Uh, coal and iron ore was produced, was produced there. And so you have this industrial proletariat, but you also have in Alabama the Black Belt, cotton-producing areas, that had long histories with slavery and post-slavery forms of production. And so in some ways, it, it could have been the ideal place for the Communist Party to organize, uh, and they did organize there. And what they were dealing with was a, a system of Jim Crow, and, if, and Jim Crow is not about simply segregation. In fact, Jim Crow is less about segregation than it is about just outright repression. We're talking about places that allow for the super-exploitation of black labor through state structures, that the state subsidizes these forms of repression that keep black wages incredibly low, that police labor irrespective of race, which is why the South was so hard to organize. Local police as well as private police you know, surround these working-class compounds. It's very much like South Africa in that sense that people are working and living in these sort of company towns under a sort of system of, you know, it's free labor, but it's semi-slavery in some respect. And then you have that with the, um, the rural areas where conditions were so bad, especially in depression, that people starved during the winter time. I had to find ways to, to get food just to, to make it through the system of sharecropping. So, so this is where it resonates with police brutality, which is the level of, of state violence was very, very high in Alabama. And what the Communist Party had to do was to defend themselves from that. That defense didn't take the form of armed self-defense, although there was that too in Alabama. It often took form of fighting in the courts and in the streets in defense of uh, men and women whom the party called class war prisoners. And it's an amazing kind of linguistic side of hand because these were folks, ordinary people, disposable labor, who would often like ride the rails or they were itinerant workers, accused of rape, falsely accused of rape, I should say, like the Scottsboro boys, accused of arguing with a white man, you know, which could lead to their lynching. And they stepped in and defended these folks, people who would have no legal representation, and then turned these local stories into international stories into international struggles. And what does that mean politically? It meant that they were able to mobilize international support for local struggles. International support, and I mean like from Moscow to Cape Town to Tokyo, people were sending in postcards, writing stories about this in multiple languages. And that, to me, is the real story. I mean, we know about the oppression, and we know that there are strategies to resist that oppression, but it's to, to internationalize these struggles that 
made the Communist Party different from, say, the NAACP? Because I don't want to give the impression that somehow the party was the only organization on the planet fighting police brutality, economic inequality, class exploitation. But they were the ones that were able to, through their networks, make it international. And so that's what that book was about. I wrote a new introduction that really linked the lessons from Hammer and Ho to the lessons for today. And some of those lessons are about strategies to fight police brutality. Some of those strategies about what we don't want to talk about, like armed self-defense and the role it played in the countryside. But some of the lessons are about what we originally began with. And that is, you can't build a truly emancipatory movement if your objective is to reform capitalism. That much of the story of the 1930s, the story that we see today as a victory, is about the creation of the New Deal state. That the New Deal state, that is, all the protections, welfare rights, aid to families with dependent children, social security, unemployment benefits, these are things that the Communist Party helped put into place and fought for. But these were also the things that were meant to be stopgap measures. Today, in our current political moment, the movement on the part of the sort of so-called left Democrats is to restore the New Deal state. <laughs> that's, that's like the end game. What I argue in the book is that that New Deal state was thoroughly racial, that a lot of black workers didn't benefit from that. I mean, imagine what it meant to be a domestic worker in the 1930s or a farm worker in the 1930s. Jump to 2017. It's no different. These are categories of precarious workers, the most exploited, who don't really have state supports. So why do we want to go back to something that was never really working for us anyway? If anything, what the New Deal state did, yes, it was a product of struggle. It was a product of a negotiation. But what it ultimately did was keep capitalism alive a little longer, you know, strengthen it through the, the Keynesian model. And what Ruthie Gilmore calls the welfare warfare state, the Keynesian state, set the stage for the expansion of the prison industrial complex. Evoking both the politics and poetic knowledge of Amy Cesaire and many others of the black radical tradition, you write in your book Freedom Dreams that the best social movements, quote, do what great poetry always does, transport us to another place, compel us to relive horrors, and more importantly, enable us to imagine a new society. In what ways do you think the political imaginary of abolition, as formulated by Angela Davis and others, allow us to imagine other ways of being in the world, and perhaps even to make our world anew? This has been our tradition. And I, when I say our tradition, I mean all of our tradition, from you know the Easter Rebellion in Ireland to Chile and under Allende to the struggles of indigenous peoples all over the planet has been to either restore a way of life that kept us whole or to try to create a way of life that keeps us whole. And that has been like human aspiration and forms of oppression can never take that from us. And that said, we can date the beginnings of a system where the powers that be believe that you should put people in cages. Like, that's not that old in human history. The, the human history is like actually cage-free, you know? The mass human history is cage-free. Cages are new. And the fact that we can date it, and the fact that it was never intended to fix a problem, it was intended to protect the class, it was intended to punish people who actually 
did not commit crimes. What do I mean by that? In most cases, what we're talking about are people who are caged for taking actions that at one point was not a crime. And I'm not talking about murder. I'm, not, I'm talking about the fact that the vast majority of people throughout history have been caged for property crimes. If you actually made a, a ledger of how many people killed by the state everywhere all over, all over the globe versus how many people actually killed through interpersonal violence or you know, organized crime, it's like the ledger on the other side of the state is huge. So we're talking about a history of caging people for property crimes when that property was not necessarily private, when property wasn't really something you owned by one person. It's, it's about trespass when the, the world of enclosure, the world of the power of capital has created fences around places that were available to you. I mean, that's fundamentally what it means. So abolition is about the restoration of the commons. It is about ending the forms of denial of human life that has caused people to trespass into realms that were theirs. I mean, literally. And to imagine a world without cages is to imagine a different relationship between the commons and justice. And again, I learned from my friend Peter Leinbaum, he links the right of habeas corpus, that is the right to a trial, the right to a form of restorative justice, to the commons. That the right to actually have this land in common, to work, to live, to sustain oneself, was linked to the same document that said, you know what, no one should go to prison or jail, or be punished, or have their head chopped off without a trial. Now, what does a trial mean? A trial basically means we've got to come to account and figure out what you might have done in violation, not of the law, but of humanity. And to do that, if you're going to true restorative justice, the objective is how to return you back to the commons, how to return you back to the common people, how to create the conditions so that we can embrace you again and forgive and love. That is abolition. Abolition is not just the elimination of the cages. It's about developing a system of restorative justice in which we take back the commons, and the commons is a place where the struggle to make community is our objective, and that no one's outside. And when I say no one's outside, I mean no one's outside. It's not about one class winning over another class and crushing that class and putting them in prison. It's about making the commons whole again. So everybody's inside. There's no outside. And that means that there will be no one who will be excluded. It's important to say this because I'm also struggling with people who will say things like, well, we just need to put the police in jail. I don't want to do that. Even someone who, who took a life, I don't want to do that. If we're really abolitionists, then we don't want to put anyone in jail. We want even those police officers to no longer be police. Thank you so much, Professor Kelly. Oh, sure. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this bonus content. Stay tuned for episode 5, Abolition in the Commons, in which we feature an interview with historian and activist Peter Leinbach. Check out our website at www.rustballradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rustbelt Abolition Radio Team, Andres, A. Maria, Cave Said, David Langsaf, and Alejo Stark. Music by Bad Infinity.